I also want to wish all of you a happy Father's Day. As you may know, the kids are always watching, whether they are young or adults. They are always watching at you. As a father, they want your approval. They want your encouragement. They want you to know what they are going through. They want you to know that uh, they succeed. And they want you to celebrate their successes. And when, when they fail, they want you to be there and to support them to hold them and to carry them through difficult times. So they are always watching. So happy Father's Day. Keep staying faithful, staying uh, close to the Lord, and show them the love of Christ and the way to life. This morning, as we look in, um, in a book, a prophetic book, the book of Daniel, it just reminded me a boat of my childhood. Daniel is a prophet that lives in exile. He is away from his country. And it reminded me both of my childhood, but both of my daughter. About a year ago, she finished the Christian uh, high school here in town. She went to South, and then she went to a secular university. She found this place, and she said, I want to become a nurse. I want to study nursing, and this, this is a program that starts right away. It's direct ad- admission to nursing. So she went to a school in Cleveland called Case Western Reserve, and it's a very secular place. It's something totally different from her Christian schooling that she experienced in her previous years. She stepped into a world that is totally different. She lost her Christian influence, the values, the morality, the passions, the habits, all of the problem-solving patterns of the, pro- of, of the people that are with her are totally different from what she learned until that time. She suddenly found herself surrounded by a culture that is secular. Most of her friends are either atheists or Muslims or other religions, and she uh, finds that she needs to function in a society that is totally new to her. So in a way, in a way, Daniel was the same thing. He was in exile. He was in a place that was so new to him and to his, uh, and to his previous culture in Judah. And while Daniel is there, he experiences something important. I'm not sure if this thing works, you know, we'll try. But uh, today we are looking at his becoming, his time in exile. And while in exile, he faces a very critical task. Right in the beginning, he's a young man, he's in exile, he is away from his culture, away from Judah, away from Jerusalem away from the Torah, away from the teachers of the law. He is in a totally new context. He basically goes back where his father Abraham came from in today's Iraq, and he is in Babylon. And right there in Babylon, he has to face something so big that he knows that he cannot solve. So in a way, he has to give an answer that there is no possible solution that he can come up with. You know what? The king says, I want you to tell me what's in my mind. I want you to read my mind. How, how would you do that? What would you do when, when you are faced with such a big, impossible task? What would you do when you have to answer to somebody a question that you cannot answer? It could be that today you are a father and you face 
an illness in your family. It could be your spouse, your child. And there's nothing, humanly speaking, you can do. So what do you do? Daniel was facing with something bigger than, than any human being can solve. How can you tell somebody what they had dreamed? Can you tell what I'm thinking right now? I'm, I'm going to be silent, you know. What was I thinking? So the king says, don't tell me what I'm thinking right now. Tell me what I was thinking when I was sleeping. And I want you to interpret it for me so that I know that it's true. And we often face this situation. Maybe you are in a family that is dismantling. Maybe you just saw your spouse having an affair with somebody else and you don't know what to do. You say, what can I do? It's beyond what I can fix. I can come and ask forgiveness, but there's, what can I do? Or maybe you are facing a big decision at work. You be, receive a tax from, from, your, from your boss. And it's so big that you know that you're not going to finish by the deadline. You know that you cannot do it. Humanly speaking, you don't have the power to do it. You don't have the help that you need. You received a task that is bigger than one you can do. Or maybe you know that your child is suffering from anxiety, deep depression, and there's nothing you can do to solve the problem. You read the Bible, you take him to the, or her to the doctor, but you don't know how to solve this problem. It's an ongoing issue. And Daniel has this impossible task. And you say, what might we learn about Daniel? What do we know about him? Well, what, one thing that we know about him is that uh, he lived 26 centuries ago. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came and took power over Israel, over Judah and Jerusalem. And he was a wise, smart emperor or king. And what he did is, he brought 10,000 young men and women out of Judah to Babylon. These were the smartest people. The, the, the ones that they were gifted, the ones that they were handsome or good-looking, healthy, with great capacity to learn, to grow. They came from one of the most uh, distinct kind of classes of people. You see, when communism usually takes a country and invades a country and takes over, they kind of take the same thing. The 10% of the people, the most educated, the most powerful, the owners of businesses, the owners of land, of anything, they are wiped out. And they are either in prison, shot, or sent to Siberia. But this king was smart. He said, no, I'm going to use them. I'm not going to destroy them. I'm going to bring them to Babylon, and I'm going to use them for my power. I'm going to be way more powerful if I can educate these young minds in the culture, in the ways, in the worldview, in the philosophy, in the ways that we live in Babylon. And that's what he did. 10,000 people from Judah, they went to Babylon and they studied mathematics. You know, Babylon was not a slow or behind country. You know, it was the most advanced culture or civilization at the time. And they made huge discoveries in mathematics, in technology, in philosophy, in music, in literature, in astronomy. People even say that, you know, they were somehow, somebody counted how many temples they had. And they said it had almost 1,200 temples in Babylon. It was a polytheistic culture. And maybe you remember the hanging gardens, you know, of Babylon. This is something, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world we call 
because his wife was from, uh, from the countryside and said, I want gardens. And maybe you remember those big towers like the precursors of our skyscrapers. They call it ziggurats. Huge towers. And even today they have the blueprint in uh, the museum in London for these big engineering miracles of their time. They were smart people. They knew culture. They knew how to, to live and how to promote good, good life. And they changed these 10,000 people along with so many other thousands of young men and women that were brought from other countries. They Babylonized them. They trained them. They some, somehow colonized them in the philosophy, in the literature, in the knowledge of this advanced culture. And what is even more, they will change their names. They change their name. One's name, your name is in that time was linked to your identity. Can you imagine them saying to Daniel, one of his colleagues, maybe coming from, uh, from Asia or Persia, saying, what's your name, Daniel? Whoa, Daniel, my name is Zego or something like that. Just, what's Daniel coming from? Well, he's from a Hebrew, small, small country. It's called Judah. And my name, he will say, was replaced with another name. And Daniel's name means God is my judge in the Hebrew. And he gets a different name, Belteshazzar. And his name means now Bel is my God. It's almost like a parody on his name. And all of his friends' names are almost like, like that. They are changed. Like if you say that God is, God is with you, then I will put a God from our land to be with you. When people change their names, you know, in, uh, in my country, we were... Before World War II, we were under the Hungarian occupation for a while. And our people were forced to Hungarianize, we call them. They were forced to learn the Hungarian language. And they received Hungarian names. And today, my mother-in-law receives about $8 a month from the Hungarian government as, as repayments. Or, you know, can you say, you know, we want to be fair with you because we mistreated you in that time. And it's not a lot, but for Romania, it's, you know, something. And, and I feel, okay. But, but in this case, they wanted the same thing. They said, we are going to teach you a new language, a new culture, and your name is going to look like our name. We will give you our names. What's interesting is, from the beginning of the book of Daniel, right in the beginning of the book, in the first chapter, when Daniel lands in Babylon... They go into what they call a program of training, three years. That, that's why was, this king was really smart. said, we are going to educate them for three years. It's almost like going to Harvard or Oxford or Princeton, one of these Ivy League schools. And he said, for three years they are going to study, and they are going to not only study in my school, but they are going to eat and drink my wine and my food. And Daniel knows that a lot of that food is sacrificed to the Babylonian idols. And what is he saying? In the beginning, Daniel decides not to defile himself. That's what he goes. He goes to the, his supervisor and says, Would you please allow us not to eat and not to drink the wine of the king? And the guy is really scared because he says, You know what? If you look bad, my head is on the line. I'm going to be killed by the king because he wants you to perform well. And Daniel says, Let's test. Let's test for 10 days. You... For 10 days, you put us to a test. You let us eat what we eat as Jews, as Hebrews, and you then compare us with the others. If they look better than us, then we'll switch 
and eat their food. And it's one test, that the first test that he passes. He is not defiling himself. And after 10 days, they look better than the others, which proves that they can eat their own food and not defile themselves. And that's what Daniel does, you know. In the Bible, usually, Babylon is like saying today, on the news, you, you hear maybe Moscow says, you know, when, when in, especially in the Cold War, right? When Moscow said something, it doesn't mean like only the city of Moscow. It means the whole communist bloc, you know, the USSR. Or if you say Washington says, you know, it doesn't mean just Washington. It means it represents the Western world, you know. It's speaking something. And the same thing was then. You know, like if you say Brussels says, it represents the entire European Union, what Brussels says today. And that's what it was. In the Bible is Babylon. It's the city of man, the city of sin, the city that is built on human power, the humanity is at the center, and what we design, what they design, and, and not only in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, especially in the Revelation. Remember, there is a Babylon again. It comes again and again as a symbol of the kingdom of man that is corrupt, that is sinful, that might have some wisdom, but is earthly wisdom. And then against this culture is the Jerusalem, the city of God. And Jerusalem is not only one place, in, because in the New Testament we are told that Abraham was looking forward to a city, to Jerusalem, a city whose architect and builder is God. It wasn't just the physical Jerusalem. It was the idea of that shalom, the place where God rules, where His kingdom is coming true. It was the city where God's will is being done. And definitely in this time, it wasn't being done in Jerusalem. Because Nebuchadnezzar, he, rise, he raised from the face of the earth both Jerusalem's walls as a city and the temple. He defiles the temple in Jerusalem. And yet Daniel says, I'm not going to define the temple of the Holy Spirit, the God's temple in my body. He basically takes the temple from Jerusalem in his own body, in Babylon, and says, I'm going to have the presence of the Lord in my own body. Many times throughout history, the church and Christians have been faced with this idea. If you are in exile, if you lose your political influence, if you lose your political power, and that's where we are today. We live here in the United States in a culture now that is post-Christian, we call. You know, Christianity is under siege, so to speak. It's not anymore the dominant kind of culture. We don't have the Christian values in our administration, in our politics, in our courts of justice, in our schools. There's not much influence. We want to be a secular country, we say. And we lost our influence. If 20, 30, time, 30 years ago we still had it, we don't have it today. And we live in this culture. And one way to do it in this secular culture to live is, is to live in isolation. To say, let's isolate ourselves. If you want to keep your Jewishness, and what's interesting is the false prophets in Daniel's times, they said to them, to these thousand people, they said, if you go to Babylon, don't go right into the middle of the city. Just live in your enclave outside the city. And this is in Jeremiah. Jeremiah records these false prophets. And they say, you need to isolate yourself, live outside, don't, don't touch the culture, and live outside. Because if you go inside, you will assimilate yourself. You will lose your Jewishness, and you will become Babylonians. So they say, separate yourself from the culture, because otherwise you will be assimilated. But you see, between these 
these two opposite poles, assimilation or isolation, there's a third one, which is what many reformers think. It came from, from many years of thinking. We say cultural transformation. No, you engage the culture. And that's God's goal. It's, God's goal is for us to be missionaries. Yes, we are in exile, but he says, you will be my witnesses in exile. So settle among the Babylonians. Don't compromise your faith, but settle in Babylon. Because even this exile is my plan. You see, the false prophet said to them, the exile is going to be two years. It's going to be quick, in and out. And God says, no, no, no. It's going to be generations. It's going to be 70 years. I want you to settle in the city. I want you to bless the city. And this is what he says in Jeremiah. You may remember these verses. He says, build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Seek the peace and the prosperity of the city in which I have carried you in exile. Is not them, but I. Can you change the slide? Pray that the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Would you pray? He says, pray for Babylon, because if Babylon prospers, then you too will prosper. There was a shepherd in Romania, and he witnessed the gospel to a Jews. Richard Rumbren was a Jew, and he lived in the beginning of the century, last century, and he was a young Jew, enamorated with the communist ideals, until he went and met a shepherd up in the mountains in Romania, and he testified, and he witnessed the gospel. And he shared his faith, and immediately he was converted. Then, when World War II came, he was put in jail because he started to preach. He became a Lutheran pastor. He spent 14 years in prison. And then he was released. He was paid by um, the Norwegian Lutheran Church in Norway. They said, we are going to take him out. Can you give it? And the communists, they sold him out. And he came to the West in 1966. And he showed and he transformed the understanding of the Western culture of what's going on in communism. He said communism is not only evil, it's also anti-Christian. They want to destroy Christian faith, to wipe it out. So he changed and he transformed the understanding of the West about what's going on in communism. He also then established an organization that today is called the Voice of the Martyrs, helping Christians in countries that are restricted, oppressive regimes, saying, we want you to know that somebody loves you, that the church is bigger, that even though you are in exile, even though you are persecuted, God wants you to be faithful, and we stand with you. We pray for you. We support you any way we can. Cultural transformation. You see, when Daniel went in Babylon, this might be shocking for us, but when Daniel went in Babylon, he started to learn what we call the trades of Babylon. It's almost like in Harry Potter, you go to that warthog school, you know, you learn all of the tricks of the culture. He learned divination, enchanting, magic practices. I'm not saying that he practiced those, but he learned them because he was the chief over all of them. He knew all of that wisdom of Egypt. And then in the middle of this, the king says, I'm going to build an army of wise people, magicians and enchanters and uh, and all of these people that will tell me what to do. And then he says, I have a dream. Would you now tell me what I had in my dream? This is the dream and demands the impossible. Tell me the dream. I don't want the interpretation. I want you to tell me the dream. Otherwise, I think you are false. You fake it. 
In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled, and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magician, the magician, enchanters, sorcerers, astrologers, to tell him what he had dreamed. What the king asked, they said, is too difficult. They are honest with him. No one, they say, can reveal it to the king except the gods. They know that, humanly speaking, there is nothing. Naturally speaking, their worldview, secular worldview, they said, we need revelation from outside. But then they also know, they say, but the gods don't live among us. We are stuck here. So they say there is no solution. And what is the king doing? Daniel, and the king basically says, I'm going to kill all of you. He writes an edict and he says, all of the magicians, all of these wise people are good for nothing. If they cannot tell me what I dreamed, they are not valuable to me. They don't know more than I know. I don't need them. I'm going to kill them. And there's a decree, an edict to kill all of them. And Daniel goes to his friends in this crisis, to his three friends, close friends, and urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. What do you do in a crisis as a father? If you have two or three friends that you can talk to, that will be wonderful. And you say to them, as a father, when you are in desperate crisis, when there is a problem bigger than you can solve yourself, would you pray for me? Let's go together and pray for God so that He will answer and He will solve this problem that is too big for us to solve. On Father's Day, remember that. God wants you to seek Him and the kids are watching you. How do you solve your problems? How do you engage others? With you. The text says, During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. God answered. And Daniel praised the God of heaven and he writes a wonderful song, hymn of praise to the Lord. Daniel received this vision and he goes to the king and shows him the dream. And he says, It's not me. The king says, What about you? What's so special? He says, There's nothing special about me. I don't have more wisdom than the others. I am just as sinful as the others are. But there is a God who has mercy, and the God that I worship. And He was merciful enough to show us. The, and do you know what you had in your dream? It was this huge statue, he says. This statue that represents the kingdoms of the earth. And it's about the future. And you, Lord, you are the head which is made of gold. Then there is another kingdom that is coming. And Daniel, by the way, he leaves to see the transfer. In the book, he is seeing the transfer from Babylon to the Medo-Persians. Darius is the next king. And he says, then it's going to be a silver. Then it's going to be bronze. And then the legs are going to be iron. And he says, this big statue has some problem, he says. As the statue was there, there is a rock. And the third thing I want to see in our text is that rock that comes and smashes. A little rock starts from the top of a mountain and rolls down. And as it rolls down, it becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. And by the time it hits the statue, it's big enough to destroy the whole statue. And this is what Daniel says. The text says, a rock was cut out. This is what you saw in your dream, king. A rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the kingdom of God that he's talking. The stone represents the kingdom of God. And in exile, 
the king received a dream. So in a way, God is preaching to the king. And Daniel is the exegete. Brings an expert from Jerusalem. And he says, I'm going to interpret you what God has revealed to you. This is revelation. This is coming from the Lord. This is going to happen. This is my God that I worship. So how shall we live in an exile? How shall we live then in an exile? We are like Daniel in an exile today. Christianity is under siege in many ways. Our values are challenged right and left. We cannot even bring the Bible in the public square, right? Because they say, no, don't bring God's Word. We don't need that. We don't need revelation from above. We know how to organize society by our own human discoveries, intelligence. Science has disproved the Bible, they say, which is totally not true. But our tendency as Christians and as the church is always to isolate because we are afraid of assimilation. But what if, well, what if in this Father's Day you think of yourself, you know what? I'm going to be like Daniel. I'm going to stand. And I'm going to stand for my integrity. I'm going to stand for my faith in exile. I feel that I'm under siege, surrounded by non-Christians. But I'm going to do that. What if you, as a young man or woman, you say, what if I'm going to be the Daniel of my generation? Every generation needs these Daniels, this, this courageous young man and woman who will stay for their faith. What if, what if I will make a habit to seek God's wisdom? When I make decisions, I will pray and meditate on His Word. What if I seek the wisdom that comes from God? I will study hard in school. It can be a Christian school or it can be a secular school. I will do my best to, to perform well at work, but I will also bring in my life the revelation, the God that gives me His Word. How easy it would have been for Daniel, right? To compromise, to lose his integrity, to drink and to defile himself with the food of the king. It would have been so easy. And it's so easy for us today to just take a drink, to just take a little drug here, a little substance here. It's so easy. It's so available. But the question is, will you honor Jesus instead of getting drunk or using drugs? Would you honor Jesus and say, no, I'm not defiling myself? As a young man and woman, would you say, you know what? I'm not going to, to use my body for my pleasures. I'm going to honor Jesus. And in the temple in Jerusalem, as they honored God and His presence, I'm going to honor God and His presence in the temple of my body. My body is not going to be used for sin, but it's going to be consecrated to the Lord. Will you do that? And you also have to remember that when we are in exile, we have to witness to the people, to the culture around us. And what is this VBS telling, telling us about tonight and the following days? That we want people in the community, along with our own kids, to learn about Jesus. And as you come tonight, you might say, you know, my friend has another friend. My kid has another kid. Would you bring them? Maybe you, you can help them register. Or maybe you can say, I'm going to drive them. Would you like me to pick up your kids and come tonight or tomorrow night to the VBS at our church? Or maybe you say, you know, why should I invite others to the church? 
when I'm not or we are not better than them. And that's true. We are not better than them. That's, that's not what Daniel's point is. We are all sinners, and yet we are sinners in the hands of a merciful God. Sinners who have met the Savior. We are not better. We don't go to the culture and say we are better than you, but we say there is a Savior that you need. There is a Lord, there is a God that wants you to know His love, His mercy and forgiveness. And that's what our message is. And this is the message to our city. This is the message to the lost people, to the unchurched in our city too. Remember, there are many, there are many ways to spread the gospel like the VBS. But one way is to go through City Fast. City Fast is a citywide or West Michigan-wide campaign. It's coming in September. But you can start now to pray. Who am I going to invite to City Fast? It's even easier than to invite them to the VBS. VBS is at school. City Fest is going to be downtown Grand Rapids. Hundreds of churches are going to partner to say, how can we invite our unchurched friends or neighbors to this event to hear the gospel? Pray for the people in your life right now. And remember Daniel's principle. As a witness in exile, you must not isolate or assimilate. But you have to keep your integrity, and God will use you to transform the city. And he wants to use you and me to transform our city, our families. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that uh, we can look back in history, and although it's such an ancient time, we can learn how you have loved, how you have loved humanity, and how you have loved to bring your hope to a world that is in need of hope. So this morning we ask that you will continue to use Hillside to bless us as your people, to be your witnesses in exile in a time such as this. May we stay strong. May we keep our faith, our integrity. And may we pray for our families, for our own walk with you, and for our city. May we be that light on a hill. May we be a city on a hill. May we pray for Grand Rapids, for West Michigan, for the VBS that is coming, for every child that is going to hear your word. And may we all worship the true God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.